Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Let me ask you if you would to take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3. You know, our focus for several weeks now has been on what we have called the lofty thinking that Paul calls forth uh, in Colossians 3. And I'd like to read just those first three verses for you to get us back up to speed of where we've been in these last several weeks. Paul writes there these words, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You know, those three verses speak of what I call real Christianity. The kind of Christianity that radically impacts a person's life. If you'll notice in verse 3, Real Christianity is composed of the element of death, and that's what it speaks about in verse 3. For you have died with Christ. Death here is a reference to the giving up on the old way of life and the way you used to live. Notice in verse 1, real Christianity consists of the element of resurrection. You've been raised up with Christ. Resurrection here, of course, is a reference to that new spiritual nature that God has brought to you, that He's placed within you, that He's created in you with the presence of His Holy Spirit. A new nature, the rest of the New Testament will go on to say, needs nurturing. This new resurrected nature must be fed. That's why you have verse 2 in the middle of these three verses. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. You know, if you feed your new nature with your old thoughts, the thoughts of the earth, that's like feeding a newborn baby with junk food. It's like saying, here, honey, have some M&Ms. Or how about some gummy bears? Eh, that just doesn't make sense. And yet, that's the whole point of what the apostle is saying here, is that for you to have this new nature placed within you and then go on and nurture it with junk food, no, that won't work. He says, set your mind on the things above to nurture this new nature. You must go on with high-quality, lofty, thoughts. That's what he's talking about here. If in Christ we've been raised up from an old way of life to a new way of life, then it makes sense that we need to think new. And that's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about, and really what it's called is the discipline of thinking new. To focus our mind on lofty things which will strengthen and feed the new life that's within us. And over the last several weeks, we've talked about some of those lofty thoughts. We've explored it the loyal love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, those things where Christ is, the kind of thinking that if you think on it long enough, if you meditate on it deep enough, it drives you deeper into the Christ-centered life. Now this morning, what I'd like to do is deal with what I think is the loftiest thought of all. The loftiest thought of all. It's a thought that, has to deal, that deals with our purpose in Christ. It's a thought that begins with the question, why? Now, I don't know about you, but I've never liked much the question, why? It's an irritating question to some degree. It's a piranha-like little word 
that tends to gnaw through all the surface stuff and go right to the bone. It's that question that my kids use on me a lot. You know, when they say, Dad, let's go shoot some hoops. And I go, you know, I don't think it'd be a good time today to do that. And then they say, why? And then I have to say something, well, you know, it's getting late or I just don't think that'll do today. And they go, well, why, Dad? And they begin to chew away at all that surface and get down to what really I'm really thinking. And that is I'm a selfish slob and I don't feel like it. <laughs> I don't want to go play basketball. I'm tired. I've had a long day. But see, the why question won't let you have that kind of relief. It keeps gnawing away. It goes down to the bone of things because why is a hard question. It's a penetrating question. It's an unnerving question. It's a bottom line question, isn't it? And you know, if you take your Bible, or if you take the concordance in the back of your Bible or a concordance and look for that little word why, you'll find that there are pages of why in the Bible. At the very beginning, God asked Cain, Cain, why are you angry? You know, there are a lot of people who experience all kinds of emotion here today. And sometimes if someone turned on you and said, why are you angry? Why are you jealous? Why can't you just rest? That's an unnerving question. Why can't you relax? Why can't you just let it go? Those are tough questions. Cain, why are you angry? Nathan confronts David and asks, why have you despised the word of the Lord? The angels ask Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Boy, you got to be kidding. Jesus asked a lot of why questions. He said, why do you worry? Why do you not believe me? Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye when there's a log in your own? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then don't do what I say? Man, are those not unnerving questions? Hard questions? Penetrating questions? This last week I watched C-SPAN and I watched the uh, social observer Thomas Wolfe deliver a lecture at the University of Illinois. Now, Thomas Wolfe is the uh, acclaimed author. He wrote the best-selling book, Bonfire of the Vanities. He is the man who's credited with naming, as he watched the 80s decade go by, calling the 80s the me generation. He's the one who's credited with that. As he was speaking before this audience, as he concluded his talk, he told a story of a, of a group of Time Magazine writers interviewing a famous Zen Buddhist monk. And they ask him all kinds of questions about his life and his religion and his Spartan kind of existence. And as they finished, he said, can I ask you a question? Just one question? They said, sure. They said, and he said to them, why does time exist? For what purpose? And there was this gnawing silence as these writers kind of fumbled over, well, what does the magazine really stand for? Why is it really in existence? And Wolf went on to use that illustration to say that the most dawning question facing America is this haunting why question, why does America exist? For what purpose? He then concluded his speech this way, and I thought it was interesting. He said to the audience, I don't know why. It seemed our forefathers knew why, but I don't know why. And if you in the audience this evening know why, then see me immediately after this speech because I would like to know why. Because a nation can't exist long without purpose. 
I thought it interesting that Time Magazine this week contained the following quote. The end of the Cold War, the vanishing of the huge external threat of communism that helped give focus and context of significance to both leaders and followers of our country has left Americans in a state of moral disorientation as if they have lost their defining purpose. You ask the question, why America? For what purpose? And you begin to realize as you look around that if that question isn't answered in a clear, succinct, almost unconscious way with American people, then eventually America the Beautiful will shatter into a bunch of small subgroupings that will gnaw away at the life of our great nation. We have to have a why answer to our existence. Now, purpose is not only a national necessity, it's an individual necessity. There are a number of people who sent me the cover story of Newsweek this week, which was entitled, In Search of the Sacred. Maybe you saw it. It's the cover story of Newsweek. Besides being another tired, or maybe I should say tiring article on baby boomers, <laughs> you know, you just want to say, come on, let's get a life. But besides being that, there were some helpful insights. For instance, the statistic that said that a majority of Americans, 58% to be exact, now say that they feel a real need to experience spiritual growth. There's a hunger out there for some kind of spiritual experience. I thought the best quote was in the summary part of the article. Here's what it said. People feel they want something they've lost and they don't remember what it is they've lost. But it has left a gaping hole that, in essence, is, most, is what most Americans are on a quest for, to fill that hole with a new source of meaning. Why are we here? What is the purpose of our existence? These questions are eternal. This is real relevant stuff here today. I mean, it's on the front of magazines. It's a discussion of social critics everywhere America is kind of lost and in a sense of moral disorientation. And you ask, why? What's the purpose? And that brings us to where we are here today. And it's a very simple but profound question. Why me? Why? Why you? Why? Why are you here? For what purpose are you here? It's the most simple and basic question in all of life but it has the most profound impact if it's answered properly. Why me? Why my existence? You know, from an earthly perspective, you'll get answers like, I'm here to be happy. My existence is to do good, to contribute something to this world. I'm here to experience life. I'm here to fall in love. Of course, there will be some who are more in the academic culture who will say there is no real meaning to life. They will say, as existentialists often say, we are here to live heroic, responsible lives in the face of a meaninglessness existence. Is that how you want to live? That's what students will be taught at the university oftentimes. Set your mind on the things of the earth, and those are the kind of answers you'll come up with, but they fall short of the glory of God. See, we're called to set our minds on the things above, and so the Scriptures give us an answer to this profound question on why do we exist with a singular lofty thought from above where Christ is. 
And I want you to see if you can spot it when we turn to a prayer that the apostle makes for a church in Thessalonica. But it's a prayer that if he were here today, he would still be making for churches all over our country, including this one. So turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 just for a moment. Let me read for you this prayer in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 and 12. Paul's concluding a section of Scripture here, encouraging these people. And then at the end of it, he says in verse 11, now notice with me as I read along, to this end also we pray. Now that, that, that alerts me to something. To this end. The sense is that he's got a goal in mind that we're shooting for. We're shooting for this end To this end also we pray for you always. See that word always? It jumps off the page. It, it speaks to us that this isn't just something that he casually did once or twice, but this is always on his mind. This end. This end that he has in mind for these people. That our God may count you worthy of your calling. That is, God has a, a specific claim on your life. Your calling. It's not something you decide. You have a calling to something by God and it's on His mind. He's always praying for it because it has an end if it's done rightly. And what is that? He says, and fulfills every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that little word, in order that? It points to our purpose. He's asking and praying that God may fill every goodness in you, may grant you power and faith, may fulfill your calling. But why? Well, you come to verse 12. In order that or so that the name of Jesus may be glorified. Do you see your why question for why you, why me? It's to glorify Jesus Christ through our lives. Paul says it in a different way in 1 Corinthians 10.31. He says, In whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I want you to turn to John 17 because it's important for you to know that Jesus Christ modeled for us a life whose focus was on glorifying God. And He summarizes the reason for His existence with those very terms in John chapter 17 as He makes His high priestly prayer. These are things you just can't run by because these are profound thoughts. But in John 17, as he's praying, right before his crucifixion, he's thinking back on his whole life. And here's what he says. I glorified thee on the earth. See, I did it. Having accomplished the work, my calling, which thou hast given me to do. I've done that. I've glorified you. That's why Jesus. Just like why you and why me. Now the reason you and I are here, and I think it was the reason our forefathers embraced, by the way, is not to be happy. <laughs> that hurts, doesn't it? It's not to be unhappy either. But it's not to be happy. It's not to experience life as if that's all there is which baby boomers cannot figure out. It's not to live some heroic, meaningless existence. It's to glorify God in the life that He has given us. 
And you know, if the majority of Americans embrace that, that 58%, the quality of life in this country would be totally different than from what it is now, if that were the driving purpose underlying all our existence. That is the reason for my existence. That is the end to which I was created. That is my purpose. And as simple as it may sound, I will never, and you will never, find rest for your soul or a deep, deep sense of satisfaction that should be growing through life until my mind is set on and my life is saturated with that singular purpose. And that is to glorify God in the way I live. Whenever you lose that lofty thought, you lose your way in this life. Whenever that lofty thought escapes your day-to-day -day practical applications, you lose the reason for your existence. And ultimately, as we'll go on next week to see, you'll lose the reward of your eternity. This is powerful stuff here, this lofty philosophical thought with so many practical applications. The word glorify, by the way, comes from the Greek word doxadzo. It's an interesting word that means to bring to light, to magnify, to bring honor to someone, or especially in our case, to someone else, that is God. Therefore, when you think about glorifying God, I want you to think of some authentic aspect of God. It may be His character. It may be His work. It may be His purpose. It may be His desires. Glorifying God is bringing some authentic aspect of God to light and magnified through your life in some way in this life. Just as moonlight is in reality reflected light from an unseen sun, so your life was created to reflect and magnify the light of an unseen God. When this thought thoroughly captures you and me, when it begins to shape our lives, when it becomes so common to us in our thinking that it actually becomes an unconscious drive in us, then we become what we were created to be. And you know what that is? It's called being fully human. Fully human. But when it doesn't, and when temporal and earthly ideas and selfish motives begin to replace that lofty thought, the things that are on the earth, what happens over our lifetime is that we march downward into an existence that is subhuman. You can go far enough that you can believe in evolution because we become like animals. But we march downward when this thought doesn't drive us from our very core. Where God becomes our, I mean, where our God becomes our appetite, like Paul says in Philippians. When glory actually becomes our shame, where rights, my rights, are the only right in my life, where now is all there is, and where pleasure is all that counts. You know what that's called? That's called being a subhuman. Less than human. Less than dignified as a human being. Less than what you were created to be. Less than what God wants you to be. Less than who He is calling you to be to make a difference in this world where you were to be a reflected, magnified light of His character, His desire, and His purposes. That's why you. Why me? Richard Booby has these words that come to mind at this point. He says, Man cannot serve both self and God. The corruption of human nature produces a self which will turn man against God and glorifies human ability. 
Pride and selfishness are the characteristics of human nature which demands its own way in all things. And yet the first step towards glorifying God, therefore, requires that we must, listen, constantly and consciously put down the demands of self and surrender to the Lord. Can you remember a time where you did that? I can remember when I discovered that real Christianity was not religion, and it was a great relief. I can remember when I discovered that real Christianity was not supposed to be on Sunday morning only. And it was exciting. But it was supposed to be a constant and conscious accountability to the God who loves me, to the God who wants the best for me, that in all things, whether it be my money, or my marriage, or my children, my relationships with other people, whether it be through difficulties or good times, that in all things, the driving force in all those experiences is that somehow, in some way, I might be a reflector of His wishes and His desire and His glory. It's as if I carried kind of this mental card that finally got through, that put in one of these little chips inside this brain, that in all things, my purpose was to glorify Him. That year was 1969, and it radically changed my life, and it has forever been impacting my choices and my decisions and my desires. You know, it's important to ask, has that entered in? Has that found its way to the center? So that it overcomes things you don't feel like doing. It overcomes obstacles that you don't feel like challenging. Where it drives your decisions and choices. But what it really is, what the constant question always is in you is, will this bring honor to Christ? If it's not, then you've lost your way. And you cease to be what you were created to be. Now, in the few minutes I have left, I'd like to mention very briefly six things that I've learned that Scripture teaches about glorifying God. And I hope there'll be help in, a help in fleshing some of this out. Letter A would be this. To glorify God means a conscious change of ownership. You might turn to 1 Corinthians 6. To glorify God really means a change of ownership. That's what I'm speaking of. As long as you own your life, the only glory you will seek will be your own glory. Even your religion... Listen, even your religion will be a covering for you to get glory from other people. <laughs> Jesus pointed that out when He confronted some religious leaders, these Jews, in John chapter 5, and He chided them. And I want you to listen. Don't turn there, but just listen to His words. These are stinging words. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another? When your whole focus in your religious life is really doing good. So somebody will say, you know, you're really good. You're really a good guy. You, you're a credit to the community. He says, how can you believe when your whole focus is receiving glory from one another? And then he says, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. How can you believe? Really believe. Contrast that rebuke to what you see in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20 or really verses 19 and 20, where he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that, listen, and that you are not your own? 
for you have been bought with a price. Now that you've been bought, glorify God in your body. You see, the difference between John 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 is who owns who. That's the real question. If you are God's, if you feel like I've been chosen by Him from eternity past, purchased by Him with the blood of His Son, redeemed from a world that is passing away to live in a kingdom that will never pass away, if you transfer the ownership of your life with that perspective, then the mission is clear for your life. This brief existence on planet earth, you're to bring glory to God. Letter B, to glorify God means that you are faithful to what you know, not what you don't know. I put that in there because I know that some people are worriers. And they worry about their past and their past mistakes thinking, oh man, I've messed it up so much that I will never be able to truly glorify God. I've, I've screwed up my life. Some people worry about what they might be overlooking. They think they're missing God's will. Sometimes I just want to grab those people and pull them up by the collar and say, listen, listen, forget about the past and forget about what you don't know. Stop worrying Listen to what Jesus said. He spoke to you in Matthew 5, 16, where He said this, let your light, now, your light, your life, what you know, what you're experiencing, don't worry about what you don't know. If you don't know it and you need to know it, He'll bring it to you. But let your light now, who you are, what you're doing now, so shine before men that they'll do what? That they'll glorify your Father who is in heaven. Don't worry about what you don't know. Just be faithful to what you do know and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's all God's asking here. Don't worry that you're not better than somebody else. God knows the least of the greatest. He's the one who authors that. Those who are great who think they're great because they made themselves great are foolish. They're great because God made them great. And the lowly are there because God wanted them to be there. But He'll balance all those accounts on the day of eternity. Your job is to do what you have before you. And that's to glorify Him. Look at letter C. To glorify God means being true to God, not true to feelings. You might look at Romans chapter 4 because we've got a great model here in Abraham. I mentioned a minute ago where God asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And this picks up on that here in Romans chapter 4. But you know what? If you're going to glorify God, you've got to move above your feelings. And most of us live in a meaninglessness existence of validation of feelings. And feelings are nothing more than that which follows facts. And if we could trace our feelings back to the real facts, we wouldn't like what we find. But the men of faith, the men of honor, the men of fame were men who lived by faith in a calling, whether they could feel good about it or not. And Abraham's a good illustration. Look there at verse 19. Speaking of Abraham, it says, and without becoming weak, or maybe we could say weak need, in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now, now can you imagine this? He's looking at himself, and he's looking at her, and she's looking at him, and they're going, there's no way. It doesn't feel good. It feels foolish. 
And yet here's what it says, verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. Doing what? Giving glory to God. He moved above His feelings. He moved above the circumstances. He moved on in faith, knowing to which destination He was headed, and to God be the glory. And that's what we're talking about here. To glorify God means being true to God, not your feelings. You want real authenticity? Then in the midst of all these feelings that are telling you contrary to the will of God, if you want to be true, really true, a real, authentic, fully human being, then glorify God. Be true to Him. That's the most trueness you'll ever be. Letter D, to glorify God means practical moments of courage. See, this, this thing is really intensely practical. For instance, you ask the question as a young person or maybe even as an older person, why stay sexually pure? When the full court presses on, when everyone else is doing it, 1 Corinthians 6 will say, flee immorality. The sin a man commits is outside his body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And then he says, therefore, glorify God in your body. That's why. You want the answer why? Why stay sexually pure? It's not by keeping your thoughts on the earth. Why? Because it glorifies God. That's why. How about why seek to accept those not like you? I mean, whose personalities and lifestyles differ from your own and you're around them all the time and they irritate you. Some are too soft. Some are too strong. Some, you know, want to feel everything. Some don't look like they have a feeling bone in their body. Why accept those people? Because Romans 15, 7 says, accept one another just as Christ accepted us to the glory of God. That's why. That's why you move towards them. For the glory of God. Why work hard when you can do, get away with less? Because Colossians 3, 23 says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, His glory, rather than for men. Why fight for your marriage? when conflict and emotion and hurt seems to have created some inseparable break. Because Matthew 19.6 says, What therefore God hath joined together. God, let no man separate. I don't care if you don't feel like it. Don't separate it for the glory of God. That's going to be worth that in eternity. It may not seem like it now, but you can't think now because when you think now, you think subhuman. When you think then, you think for the glory of God. That's the point. A glory that we'll be meeting one day, by the way, face to face. The one who lives for God's glory will have a life peppered with these moments of practical courage. Letter E, to glorify God means an everyday fight of faith between the temporal and the eternal. I'm going to go ahead and read Hebrews. You might turn there, but Hebrews 11.24 speaks of Moses. And listen to this. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused all that treasury. Choosing rather to endure. Listen to what he chose. He chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And how did he do that? Verse 26. Considering the reproach of Christ. And you know what I can almost put in parentheses? You know what the reproach of Christ is? The glory of God. 
He chose the reproach of Christ to be greater riches than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to the reward. He wasn't looking to the now. He was looking to the kingdom that was coming that would bring glory and honor and praise to his God and to himself. That's how he managed to do that and to endure and to choose ill treatment. Boy, that's tough. But yet that might be a choice you have to make someday. Letter F, to glorify God means satisfaction at the end of life. And I'm going to add one other phrase, an expectation for the next life. Not just satisfaction in this life, but expectation in the next life. You know, I, I watch people die a lot. I don't see a lot of people who die or grow to the close those silver years with this growing sense of satisfaction about life. Oftentimes there are some, and they're a delight and an expectation of what's coming a demonstration of real faith. But I want you to know, as I look through the Scriptures, I see that. I hear satisfaction in Paul's last letter when he said, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. You hear the satisfaction there? I did it. I did it. I stayed true. And then he adds this, which is expectation. In eternity, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. That's expectation. I hear satisfaction in Abraham's life when in Genesis 25.8 it says, And Abraham breathed his last and died at a ripe old age, an old man. But then it adds, and satisfied with life. This from a man who was called out of a prosperous business to go from Ur to go to Palestine to receive a land that in this life, listen, he never received. He didn't get it. And yet, you know what he did? He died with satisfaction. And how did he do that? Because he knew he would get it. That's how. It's not over when it's over, regardless of what Yogi says. It goes on. I hear satisfaction in Jesus' prayer in John 17. Remember, I glorified thee on the earth. I've accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. But then he adds in the next verse, which we didn't look at, and he says, and now glorify me. See, he's expecting something. And he's going to get it. And he did get it. I mention all that because to glorify God means as I go through life, I, I rest at who I am and what I have and what's been given me. I don't live my whole life wishing I were somebody else, wishing I had more, wishing I had these experiences. I live my life saying, I'm glad of who I am. And I'm glad that I'm a vessel through which, however small or however great, God can reflect His desire, His character, and His purposes on this planet. What a, what a high and privileged calling. What a lofty, Eternal thought. So when you ask the question, why, for what purpose do we exist? I hope this morning will just help you a little bit. I hope that you, over time in your soul, when somebody mentions the why question, that your soul will pulsate with this really most lofty thought. A thought that's been given to us so that we might live a meaningful life. A thought where we can set our minds on the things above which gives meaning and purpose in life. Why me? Why you? To glorify God.
and enjoy Him forever. That's why. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.